Greetings, everyone. Welcome to the Fallon Forum. Uh, we are broadcasting from Des Moines, Iowa, the bastion of Midwest sanity, known as the cultural and culinary crossroads of America, or as we used to be known before, the uh, current dysfunction in our state government. Hey, I want to thank our sponsors, including our anchor sponsor, Gateway Marketing Cafe, at Central Iowa's premier good food store. Gateway brings together the world's finest products and Iowa-grown foods and passionate service. If you're looking for quality with a community-focused, check out Gateway Marketing Cafe. All right, later in the program, we'll be talking with Joel Searby with the Forward Party. That's Andrew Yang's creation. We'll also be talking about climate change and taking a look at some of the tough stuff we have to be cognizant of relevant to former President Obama and current President Biden. And then Kathy Burns will join us for our August Garden Q&A. But first, delighted to welcome to the program my friend Rob Sand. State Iowa. State of Iowa Auditor. How are you? I'm good. You? It's a Monday. It's no. a Monday. Yeah. We are recording this on a Monday. <laughs> hey, so a um, couple things I want to talk about. Yeah, you made national news. Well, not you. Well, the bill yeah. picking on you made right. national news because yep. it, uh, I mean, it, it garnered a lot of bipartisan opposition, too. Basically, it yeah. takes a, a shot at the powers of the auditor's office. And um, how bad is it as bad as... People say it is. Um, I'd say it's pretty awful. That's that's why organizations that almost never comment on pending legislation said, you know, don't do this. Uh, the American Institute of CPAs literally writes the standards for how audits are supposed to happen. They almost never comment on legislation, but they they did send a letter to the legislature and the governor to say, hey, this is a really terrible idea. You shouldn't do this. So th this hasn't happened in other states. No. Uh, wow. And in, in fact, that's one of the things that I think is most interesting about this. It's a really good example of politics that goes really beyond partisanship to what can be just as big of a divide, insiders versus outsiders. And here's what I mean by that. Um, did, did, uh, did the governor and the handful of folks in the legislature who are pushing this bill rely on partisanship to get it passed? Absolutely. They were able to uh, easily convince some of the people in their party that this is a good thing to do because I happen to, I mean, I'm literally wearing a blue shirt today, but sometimes <laughs> I do say, you know, it's because I was wearing a blue shirt, um, you know, because I have a D behind my name. Yeah. And so you get folks like one of the state senators. Uh, this bill on the Senate side was released and had a final floor vote all within 10 hours. Yeah. And one of the state senators on the floor of the Senate during debate said, well, I haven't read this bill, but if the auditor doesn't like it, we must be on to something. <laughs> oh, gosh. Yeah. That is flagrantly partisan. Yeah. And so basically what it does is it, uh, it, it, it takes away your ability to collect certain information that could be crucial to an audit. Right. Yes. And that goes back to, you know, so, so my, my, my broader point on that one is, right, they got people in their party to go along with it. But this isn't something that I think you're going to see happening all over the country in red states. Why is that? Because it's incredibly dumb and there's typically typically <laughs> not two sides to waste fraud and abuse alec you know alec the american legislative exchange council noted for most of the far-right legislation passing everywhere yes. in the country right yeah they have a model bill on auditing that does the opposite <laughs> well <laughs> the that, opposite that, that increases your ability to subpoena yeah. documents and the, information it, what it does is it creates criminal penalties for people who obstruct an auditor's access to records in government Whereas this literally requires people to obstruct our access to records. So this isn't, it's not an ALEC bill. It's the opposite of what ALEC wants. It truly is something that is just protecting insiders. And it's something that's pushed by a small number of insiders. And they used partisanship to get right. it there. Certainly. Well, and, and, and this, is a, this is one more uh, example of Governor Reynolds attempting to consolidate as much power as possible not just within the executive branch, but within her office. That's how I see it. Yeah. I mean, at the fair end enough? of the day, yeah, I think that's fair. Uh, because we're now, instead of having open access to Iowa courts, we, if we have a dispute over what record we can get, uh, we don't get to go to an independent judge. Instead, it's going to go to a three-person panel, which is going to be one person on the agency we're auditing, one person in our office, and a third person appointed by the governor. So it's already biased. Two to one. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Uh, and so they're going to have the ability now, and the, the statute says the decision of the panel is final. Right. So at the end of the day, I guess, you know, if you want, if you want people in positions of trust and power to have the ability to sweep wrongdoing that they're responsible for under the rug, this would be a great way to give them that power. Okay. And I'm sure at some point someone is well, going to use it. And Governor Reynolds is not happy with some of the audits that you have, uh, you have, you have sponsored. 
You know, and yeah, have we, part of it, right? have we, if we, you, you shouldn't run for state auditor if you're uncomfortable making powerful people mad at you, right? Because <laughs> that is going to be your job. I would say that the auditor. I would say that applies to all public uh, public offices. I would agree with that. Yeah. I would auditor in particular. Yeah. but yes, sure, you're sure. right. You're, you're going to have to do the right thing sometimes, and doing the right thing. You're means, the watchdog agency. That's right. I mean, we right. have we have other watchdogs in state government: the Office of Consumer Advocate. Uh, yep. The, uh, the elder uh, ombudsman's elder offices. Yeah. yeah. Are, are they being weakened as well? Uh, well, the long-term care ombudsman was just moved so that is underneath the agency that administers long-term care. Oh, so that's a no conflict there. Yeah, that's an actual violation yeah. of federal law. Uh, right. They didn't catch in the reorganization bill, which of course, you know, it was demanded by the governor that they pass that bill without making any amendments. So they're going to have to. Convince yeah. the federal government that that is somehow okay. And I know the Office of Consumer Advocate has formerly been the the the, the watchdog that that uh, that keeps an eye on utility corporations yep. for the public. And now that and that office is very crucial in the whole conversation about these carbon dioxide pipelines right now. And yet it has also been moved, with some say, into a position where it's going to have you know not be a watchdog, but maybe just the lapdog of the governor. I have not. Uh, I don't. I'd know as much about that piece as I do about the ombudsman's sure. piece because we've yeah. done a lot of work over the years with uh, Medicare and Medicaid. Well, well switching gear, you've got um, you know you, you've been paying attention to the uh, school voucher initiative. I mean, yeah. Governor Reynolds, despite uh, popular opinion being against her on that, despite many in her own party not liking the privatization of uh, of education, which that amounts to, it passed. Yep. What are your thoughts? Uh, I think you could be someone who actually thinks. One of those relatively unusual people who in the state of Iowa thinks that vouchers are a good idea and yet still think that this bill is a disaster waiting to happen. Once those public dollars come out of public schools and they're paid in tuition to a private school, they can do anything on God's green earth that they want with that money except for one thing. They can't pay a rebate to parents. Now, why that would be on the list and nothing else would be, don't ask me. Why would a parent want a rebate in case they had to change schools in the middle of the year or something? I, 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 try, to, I try to imagine, you know, okay, why, why would you set it up that way? Here's what I can come up with. You wouldn't want a private school whose tuition is $5,000 to say, well, we charge you the full $7,500 and then we're just going to give you a rebate for the $2,500 in cash. Because then that parent isn't necessarily going to be putting that money into qualified educational expenses, right? Mm -hmm. Of which tuition is one. And so there's rules for the parents on how they can spend the money. There's rules for, um, they can get kicked out of the program, they can get charged with a crime if they do something wrong. But once that money's paid as tuition, and that, by the way, is required. That is what it is required to be used for first. Right. Once it's paid as tuition, private schools can do anything they want with it. If they want to send their principal on a summer-long world tour, fly them first class and put them up in five-star hotels, they can do that. If they are an owner of the school, if it's a for-profit school, and they decide they just want to take all the public money and put it in their own pocket, that is legal. There is no requirement in the bill that the money be spent on educating children. So this sounds and, like a, a place where a watchdog auditor might come in and have an opinion. Uh, you, 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 you might think so. Yes. Are, you, are you still able to do that? Oh, well, I don't know the degree which we're going to be able to audit it because, of course, in the bill that they ran through the legislature mm -hmm. this session, they included uh, as a document that we uh, presumably will have less access to records of educational corporations, yeah. schools that are private. So it's going to be tough for us to look at it. Here's the other thing. Uh, if you don't have rules and regulations and contracts, it's harder for us to say that anything is wrong. Right, and so okay. since the only yeah. thing that they can't do is pay a rebate, there's not a lot for us to look at to say that it's wrong. But keep in mind, of course, that a lot of what we do in our office is drive conversation about whether or not something's wrong. Mm -hmm. We investigate and we report. We can't actually force people to do anything. We don't bring criminal charges the way I did when I was at the AG's office. And so at the end of the day, consider this. They can spend this money, your tax dollars, on anything they want. We also are going to have no, they have no public meetings, hmm. no public records, and no annual audit available to the public. And so how are we even going to know what they're spending the money on? There's got to be uh, the possibility of a court case somewhere in here. This sounds so uh, undemocratic and, and, and un, un, unmanageable that something is, something is going to go wrong if it hasn't gone wrong already. Yeah. Uh, 
in at least for this statute, I, I uh, you know, we'll, we'll file a case if we see that we have one in front of us. Mm. Um, the Iowa Constitution creates the auditor's office, but doesn't create its specific responsibilities. Right. And uh, look, at the end of the day, uh, there's a lot of laws that are dumb yet constitutional, mm. right? Constitution only prohibits certain things, sure. not all dumb things. Right. So if you want to pass a law like this that <laughs> literally hands out money with no oversight. Here's the other thing, yeah. a funny thing about this, Ed. They say, uh, you know, oh, well, you know, the parents are going to let us know if there's a problem with the school. Okay, so we should we should give out public dollars and have the people who do the oversight be the same people who benefit the most from the dollars being given out in the first place. What could go wrong with that? What could go wrong? Yeah. Yeah. Hey, so um, take a look at <clears throat> politics for a minute here, Rob. Uh, you are the lone Democrat uh, in state in in in, in a statewide office, or in the U.S. congressional delegate delegation. Oh, yeah. um, sorry to remind you of that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and uh, and you didn't win it even by that much. It was a fairly it was a squeaker. You 22%. know, percent. Yeah. So um, what what is uh, what is the problem? What what is the fix? Obviously, the Democratic Party is not what it once was. Mm -hmm. I mean, it wasn't that long. Well, t two Democratic incumbents, long-term incumbents, were beat last time mm -hmm, around. Mm -hmm. I mean, the Democrat, uh, the governor's office was in Democratic hands for, what, uh, 12 years out of the past couple decades? Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. And uh, Congress, at times, has had as many as three Democrats, and now it has four Republicans. Right. Uh, what's wrong with the Democratic Party? Uh, so let's, let's start here. All right, we can, we can, every sports league every year, you can look at teams and... If you look behind their simple win-loss record, mm -hmm. you can see teams that are both better than their record looks and worse. Right. Iowa Democratic Party is actually better than its record looks. The closest congressional race in American history, any year, any state, right. was Rita Hart, now yeah. Democratic Party chair, losing by six votes in 2020. Right? I uh, There they were more split-ticket voters who voted in favor of Iowa Democrats for statewide office as a percentage of the state's population than any other state in the country. 48.7% uh, of Iowans voted for three Democrats for statewide office, at least three. Uh, so when you look at that and you see 48.7%, there were only seven statewide offices on the ballot. Sure. Which means that nearly half the state voted for Democrats for nearly half the offices. It's just these tight margins that cost Cindy Axney and cost uh, Tom Miller and Mike Fitzgerald their races. We have work to do. We need to do a better job of focusing, I think, number one, we need to be talking more about pocketbook issues for ordinary Iowans. We do need to do a better job of focusing on uh, issues where Iowans agree with us, mm -hmm. right? But we are not uh, in a situation here where we are uh, lost in the woods. We just, if we can do a little bit better, we can I, win. I, to me, it looks like we're lost in the cornfields. I know. I mean, Iowa used to have uh, the Iowa legislature. You had you had you had rural representatives. Yeah, you had a lot of them. Yep. None. Well, you also have <laughs> fewer people representing uh, the rural parts of the state right now, too. Sure. Right. And what hap What has happened in Iowa has happened nationwide. But you but look if you look around the country, though, right? Kansas substantially more Republican than Iowa just reelected a Democratic governor. Mm -hmm. uh, Kentucky looks like they'll probably reelect their Democratic governor. Louisiana, Louisiana, yeah. North Carolina, and then you got states like Montana, Ohio, uh, Georgia, all of which are equally or more Republican than Iowa. Have U.S. senators. Some of this, uh, yes, we have work to do. I'm agreeing with that, but we actually uh, are again better than our record looks. And uh, again, I look at the the working class towns, uh, the union towns like Ottumwa, yep. yep. uh, Burlington. I mean Dubuque. I mean Chuck Eisenhower only won by a, a small amount. Yep. I mean every every former Democratic stronghold in a union town is going Republican. So is it enough to talk about the economy and jobs? Because seems like most labor union members are going Republican. Uh, no, I mean there is no enough. Right? We should always be talking about issues that matter to people. Mm -hmm. It's not just the economy and jobs and education and health care. Uh, we need to be focused, I think, on what people are concerned about, talking about what they're concerned about, and you know, continually uh, being willing to take on Republicans in positions of trust and power who abuse that trust and power to further themselves. 
right? I think it's really important for people to remember, and, and I hope that the party, I, I will be doing this, but, uh, you know, Democrats have now been without uh, any say in lawmaking in Iowa for, what, seven years? Yeah, and it's, it, I've never seen a supermajority in both chambers like we have now. Do you think that's going to change? We have 20? a supermajority in the Senate. Senate, right? Repro- in the, Republicans right. do in the Senate. And the Senate. House is darn close. It's close, yeah. So but do you think we're likely to see any changes uh, favorably from I'm, a Democrat's point of view? I'm optimistic that the House in 2024 will uh, will have add a few more members on the Democratic side. I, I don't know. What do you say to the argument that, uh, that uh, Democrats uh, blew a big opportunity to reconnect with rural voters with the uh, CO2 pipeline situation? I mean, what, 78% of Iowans don't want to see eminent domain used to build these pipelines? Mm-hmm. And, um, and you, you know, I mean, the Republicans have clearly, you know, botched that. And, and clearly you've got Governor Reynolds, who's on the wrong side of that, Branstead as well. But it seems like it was an opportunity for Democrats to say, hey, we're going to stand with rural landowners against these yeah. pipelines. And that didn't happen. I, 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 you'd have to have one of them on and ask the folks in the legislature um, the question. We haven't had any intersection with it in the office hmm. in terms of what we've been doing with pipeline stuff. I've met with people who are against it. I've met with people who are before it. But at the end of the day, what the what the bills have been doing in the legislature on that has been not my focus. Right, sure. Um, well, yeah, you've had a... <laughs> Ed can tell you I showed up a half an hour late for this interview. Yeah. <laughs> it's not for a lack of things to do. There's uh, plenty right, that's right. keeping us busy, and that just isn't one that's... Uh, so I, I guess I'm not gonna I'm not gonna second guess or 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 predetermine what it is that the Iowa Democrats have done in the legislature on that issue, because uh, it isn't one that I've had a particularly uh, close view on. Yeah. Hey, folks, we've been talking with uh, Rob Sand, the uh, auditor of the state of Iowa. Uh, thanks so much for joining us, Rob. Happy to do it. And when we come back from a short break, we're going to be talking with uh, Joel Searby. He's with the uh, Forward Party. That's the creation that Andrew Yang has put together, and it's active in many states around the country right now. It'll be interesting to hear what's going on, what the perspective of that party is all about. Uh, back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Market and Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store, centrally located at ML King Parkway and Woodland Ave. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, hand-cut meats, local and international cheeses, wines, and craft beer. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market. Good food, great community. At Story County Veterinary Clinic, Dr. Kim Holding has over 30 years of experience working with all creatures great and small. Cat, dog, horse, cow, elephant. Well, if you've got a pet elephant, you may be in trouble. Kim's clients stick with her year after year because they know she'll do right by them and their pets and farm animals. So give Kim a shout to keep your animals happy and healthy. Call 515-232-8766. That's 232 Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Good conversation there with our state auditor, Rob Sand. Hey, thanks to the uh, Catholic Peace Ministry. That's an independent nonprofit with no ties to the Des Moines Catholic Diocese. CPM focuses on nuclear disarmament, the need for diplomacy in Ukraine, and ending the permanent war economy. You can learn more at catholicpeaceministry.org. Thanks also to Architecture by Synthesis. Owner Mark Klipsham asks that you use the most energy-efficient methods you can afford and the greenest, longest-lasting materials available. Examples of Mark's work can be found at architecturebysynthesis.com. Hey, I'd like to now welcome to the program Joel Searby. He is the Managing Director for Communities and Building for the newly formed Forward Party, and he heads up the party's political, candidate, and state organizing work. Joel, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. So uh, many of us, in uh, first of all, the Forward Party, founded uh, by Andrew Yang, and uh, many of us in Iowa are very fond of Andrew Yang. <laughs> uh, although he did not win the Iowa caucuses, um, I think you'd find that people here felt he was a great guy, uh, very thoughtful, and 
we uh, we would love to see we'd love to see him again here as a candidate or just uh, stopping by for a beer. At any rate, um, just a little reflection on our, our past history with Mr. Yang. Now he is uh, the I guess I should say the co-founder of the Forward Party, correct? That's right, alongside uh, former New Jersey Governor Republican Christy Whitman. Uh, both have become good friends over the course of this two-year journey we've been on to launch this new political party for America, and I think are really indicative of uh, the, the diversity of the types of perspectives that we're welcoming into the forward party. A former Republican governor, former Democratic uh, presidential nominee, Andrew, having you know very innovative, uh, sometimes progressive, sometimes more moderate positions. Uh, governor Whitman having some conservative Republican positions, others that are seen more moderate. Uh, and, and across the political spectrum, we're really trying to create a home for people who feel homeless right now politically. And, and uh, Governor Whitman and Andrew uh, joined alongside a bunch of other folks who have been thinking about how to create a new space in our American political system. And uh, we launched one year ago uh, yesterday. And that is uh, a huge percentage of the electorate feel pretty homeless right now. <laughs> I think some polls say right. over 60 percent. Some polls say that. That's right. And the, the, the data are clear on this, that the American people want something new. I think there are tremendous systemic blocks. Uh, the two-party system has favored itself. Uh, if you look at <laughs> California, the yeah. Democrats are in, in full control. If you look at Republicans in uh, Florida, for example, where they have tight control, uh, this is by design in many cases through things like gerrymandering and through controlling the primary process and uh, making sure that it's very difficult for new parties to come in. Uh, but we know the American people want this. The data are yeah. clear on that, and we're trying to create that space for them. I saw that when I was a state legislator. I was um, there was there was uh, I was a Democrat. There was a Republican fellow who uh, we we agreed on a bunch of things. We agreed that it might be worth trying a unicameral system. We agreed that uh, instant or that um, that uh, ranked choice voting would make sense. And any time we introduced a reform like that, the Republican and Democratic leaders on the on the state government committee would both rise and both oppose these amendments and then shoot them down. <laughs> so you're right. I mean, it's, a, it's, a, it's one thing the parties can agree on is shooting down any opportunities for any new player on the block. That's right. Unfortunately, politics is largely about power uh, and who controls that power in a given place. And when when that has become the central uh, focus of, of our political system, instead of serving the people whom elect us, then these are the kinds of outcomes you get. You get a right. political system that is controlled by the interests in power, and, and their objective is to keep that power, as opposed to their objective being to really serve their constituents. And that's part of what we're trying to do at the Ford Party, is put power back into the hands of the people to, to allow elected officials the freedom to govern in a way that services the people whom they are supposed to serve. So what that means, practically speaking, is that in some places, like San Francisco, there may be more progressive solutions to things like uh, homelessness or the unhoused, whereas in Lubbock, Texas, you might have a more conservative solution to that same problem. And we want to create a political home where that's actually possible, that we're focused on solving problems and getting things done for people as opposed to just controlling power. So what about when you come to a problem of national significance, such as climate change? Where, where, where does the forward party stand on climate change? Well, we don't take specific national positions on platforms, and there's a very specific reason. We focus on setting a set of principles and values at the national level that unite us around why we believe that the people want a new direction in America. And then with our state parties, they are going to say, what are the priorities for our state? And what are the biggest problems to get solved? And in many cases, that will include things like climate change and the environment. And then they're going to say, well, then we want to find candidates who present solutions to those problems, those priorities. And those solutions, in some cases, will be more progressive and some more, more conservative. And, and then those best solutions can then rise to the top to problems, huge problems like climate change. So in, in maybe not in this cycle, though we may have a few federal candidates, but you could imagine in the 2026 cycle that there's a slate of five or seven uh, forward congressional candidates and maybe one or two U.S. Senate candidates. And what they're focused on is solving real problems. And, and they're going to come up with ideas for how we deal with climate change that are not being allowed to have oxygen in the current system. And we think that that innovative kind of thinking is what we need with these huge problems uh, because the current two-party system doesn't provide room uh, for those kind of innovative thoughts to actually turn into legislation and then get passed. So you have uh, there, so there are states right now where there are 
there are candidates representing the forward party on the ballot, correct? That's right. We have three ways that candidates interact with us right now, directly as a candidate, as a forward party candidate at places like Florida, where we're already a minor party with the ballot line. The second way is where people uh, will actually switch parties and become a forwardist as a current elected official. My mayor in Florida switched parties. He's now a forward elected mayor. The third way, which is where we're seeing a lot of success right now, is to affiliate and not uh, change your political party. So we have in Arizona four state legislators who affiliated with us as forward Democrats. In, in Pennsylvania, two state senators, sitting state senators, stood on the Capitol Rotunda steps and said, we're going to affiliate with forward as forward Democrats. We had a mayor in Illinois who's a forward Republican who said, I want to begin the process of, of creating space for something different. And so people can also affiliate with us. And we're already just in, in the first year of our existence and really honestly in the first few months of our outreach to directly to candidates. We're already over 30 of those uh, nationwide, and we're on track for 300 by this cycle. So you have 30 candidates already nationwide, and you think you're going to increase that up to 300 before the election? We have 30 what we call forwardists who fall into one of those three categories, okay. candidates, affiliates, right. or switchers. That's okay. right. And you said you can get to 300? Our goal is to get to 300 for the 2024 cycle, falling into those three categories. We have 12 battleground states that we're focused on. That doesn't mean we're not doing anything in the other states, but 12 where we're really leaning in. That we think we've got great opportunities to make that happen. So in what ways do you, would you say the Democratic and Republican parties are currently failing the American people, failing to accomplish the uh, aspirations that most people embrace? Well, one of the things that we talk about as, as our three kind of core pillars of how we think about values are free people, thriving communities, and a vibrant democracy. And so when you put things in a lens of, is, is my community thriving? And you can look at whether the Republicans or the Democrats run your community, whether that's your community as your state legislature or your community as your town or even your neighborhood, um, is that partisan approach actually helping my community to thrive? How is How are we dealing with the unhoused in my community? Is that problem getting solved in the current partisan system? How are we dealing with uh, things like uh, the affordability of housing? How are we dealing with education? Is the current partisan system servicing that? Am I getting the results that, that I want for my community to thrive? Do we have a vibrant democracy? You know, uh, I think I would I would call out Republicans here where they, there's a lot of Republicans, and I'm a former Republican myself, and I ran an independent presidential campaign against uh, Trump for the specific reason that I think there are Republicans who are threatening the core of our democracy, who are potentially undermining the very principles of, of democracy. And so when I ask myself, is there a vibrant democracy? Do we have the ability to, to get that through the current partisan system? I don't think it is. When I ask myself about free people, you know, we have the legislatures on the Republican side who are trying to control a huge amount of people's lives. And then on the Democratic side, we have uh, in, in some extreme fringe positions, incredibly progressive uh, positions that want to control life in a different way uh, through a different set of mechanisms. So when the incentives are to keep power and to not serve the people, no, the partisan system is not serving the people. So I, I would I would deduct from what you've been saying, saying that uh, even as a former Republican, you, you would not have supported some of the draconian changes that are passing in states across the country, including Iowa, relevant to uh, abortion. Exactly. I think there's there's a, there's got to be space for people to disagree on core tenets of of moral questions and still find common ground on solving some of the underlying problems. And abortion is one. Again, we don't take positions at the national party on specific things like abortion or or uh, you know gun safety or the environment. But what we do say is that we want to create a home where real problems are getting solved. And so as a as a more conservative leaning person and a former Republican myself but who also believes in radical pluralism and that we live in a beautifully diverse country. What I want to ask is how can we support single moms? How can we support communities um, where this is a, this is a challenge? Why, why are we facing uh, questions of reproductive health in the first place? And where can I find common ground with my progressive friends uh, that will actually help women in their communities to get better health outcomes, for example. That's a place we can find common ground instead of what the national party system wants to do in order to raise money and score points is take it immediately to the most extreme question of, you know, what is the what is the viable life uh, uh, test? How many weeks should it be? And they want to have these fights over those kinds of very contentious issues as opposed to actually trying to solve some of the underlying 
problems that are causing us to have this this discussion in the first place. Yeah, I, I've certainly seen that in my own own time here in Iowa. I mean, I you, you, there's always a, always a fight over abortion, but um, one thing I was able to accomplish years ago was to get Republicans and Democrats to agree to set up a, a commission, a special task force, to see what we could agree on from both sides. To, what could we do to help reduce the incidence of unplanned pregnancies? And it was a really good, really good task force, uh, good outcomes, zero action. Nothing came of it at the state legislature after the, after the task force met. So I, I hear what you're saying. So let me ask you this. Now, it's not, third parties aren't new to the American political uh, you know, game. Uh, right now we have, uh, when, you, when people think of third parties, if they think of them at all, they think of libertarians perhaps, Green Party. Uh, what's wrong? Uh, do you see, uh, is the forward party providing a home that people might not be able to find in, say, the Libertarian or the Green Party? Well, we are certainly creating a new kind of party, not just another third party or minor party. What we're trying to do is create that home where people from all political spectrums can say, I want to get together with people, even when I disagree with them, and focus on core issues of solving problems and making sure that we preserve our democracy and create an environment where people can be free, as opposed to most minor parties, in fact, almost all of them, which tend to be much more ideologically focused and narrow and niche and and you know with all respect to both the greens and libertarians they've both become quite narrow in their ideological views and and they're not really trying to create a home for a whole bunch of different kinds of people um, which is what the forward party is really trying to do and i think it's important too to note that what we're doing and how we're doing is fundamentally different than than any minor party has tried in our lifetimes and really since the 1840s and 50s when the republican party was born which is to to create an actual uh governing force by reaching out to existing elected officials and to create a national structure that is uh, large and diverse enough to hold uh, the diversity of thought and opinion that it takes to build state parties and then leaning into providing the resources. I mean, we're already the largest uh, party in America that is not the Republicans or Democrats by resources and by staff. And our goal is to surpass the, the Libertarians and the Greens in number of elected officials in this cycle so that we can firmly put ourselves in that spot. But, of course, you're not the only new third party. Uh, the No Labels Party comes to mind. What are your thoughts on the No Labels uh, effort? Well, No Labels is fundamentally a different effort than what we're doing at Forward. They've been very clear that they're not trying to build a, a durable, viable, long-term political party. They're creating a, an emergency scenario for the presidential race. They believe that there needs to be an option to run an independent bipartisan ticket um, against Trump and, and Biden if that they are the nominees. And they're creating parties only in name in the sense where they have to have them legally to run a presidential candidate. But they're not investing in, by their own admission, uh, they're not investing in infrastructure of long-term party building, uh, equipping leaders, recruiting candidates at the local level, which is our focus. Right. So it's a very different effort. Um, they're focused on the presidential. We're not running a presidential campaign. Right. And, and no, no labels looks to be fairly right wing. When you cut beneath the kind of nonpartisan veneer, well, they certainly have supporters uh, from the Republican side, and there's a lot of Democratic groups that are working to to cast them as a, a further right group. But you know, I happen to know a lot of those folks over there, and we work hard to keep uh, you know to not burn bridges and keep doors open. Sure. But again, they're, what they're doing is very fundamentally different from what we're doing. Uh, I do have real concerns about their strategy potentially. Uh, re-electing Donald Trump, which is a real risk. Uh, but I also support their right, uh, as I do for any candidate, to run as a third-party sure. independent campaign. And I think we got to be careful about, you know, knee-jerk casting aspersion on somebody who's trying to create a new way. Well, it's, I mean, it makes it easier when two of your prominent, uh, most prominent Democrats are, are, are Manchin and Cinema. I mean, Cinema, of course, is a former Democrat, but uh, if, that's, if, that, if that's the face of the Democratic side of your no-labels party, it's hard not to want to... Uh, you know, it's hard not to label them as a fairly right wing, but well, they're certainly they're certainly you know very carefully putting together the face of their party, uh, their their entity, their their effort. Yeah. But again, very different from what we're trying to do. We we very much welcome progressive ideals. We have many leaders who have more progressive ideas uh, in the forward party, and also some who have conservative ideas. And, and we believe we're creating new homes, starting at the local level, right. for people to really govern, uh, as opposed to focusing on the presidential race, which I think is is honestly a strategic mistake. So one more question. I mean, this uh, this program has been operating for 14 years now and we're in a we're in a bunch of states but we home we're home based in Iowa so I'm curious uh, what are your plans in Iowa 
Well, we do have a good handful of leaders who've come to us and, and said they want to be part of the forward party and, uh, and help build in Iowa. It's not one of our battleground states, but that doesn't mean that uh, we're not operating and organizing and beginning to build, uh, particularly looking for local leaders who want to run for office as, as either forward affiliates or independents affiliated with forward or as Republicans or Democrats who are forward Republicans or forward Democrats gotcha. uh, in Iowa. And certainly that's an option. And uh, we, if you're interested and you're sitting in Iowa right now, you can go to forward party com and uh, input your information. Make sure you include uh, your location and you'll get funneled to state leaders in Iowa. Forwardparty.com. Joel, thank you uh, so much for joining us. I appreciate you having me. Folks, we got to take a short break. It's uh, Ed Fallon with you here. We'll be back in a minute. We're going to be talking about uh, uh, something that's going to make some Democrats unhappy. Sorry, but there is a there's some climate hypocrisy in the Obama-Biden era that needs to be called out. We're going to do that when we come back from a short break on the Fallon Forum. Years ago, Chef George Fromaro envisioned a new market to house all his favorite foods under one roof in the heart of Des Moines. From that vision, Gateway Market was born. Over the years, Gateway has become Central Iowa's premier good food store, bringing together the world's finest products with Iowa-grown foods and passionate personalized service. Gateway's welcoming environment in downtown's Sherman Hill neighborhood encourages discovery and honors the simple pleasures of the table. If you're looking for quality foods with a community focus, experience the good food difference at Gateway Marketing Cafe. Catholic Peace Ministry was founded in 1981 to work for peace and justice. It's an independent nonprofit with no ties to the Des Moines Catholic Diocese and is guided by an ecumenical board representing many faith traditions. CPM focuses on the urgency of nuclear disarmament and the need for diplomacy in Ukraine. CPM also provides an educational forum about the permanent war economy, which must be challenged if we are to achieve lasting peace and justice. Learn more at catholicpeaceministry.org. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Hey, thanks again to our sponsors, including Westrom Optometry, located in Des Moines East Village. Dr. Joel Westrom and his staff are fluent in English and Spanish. The clinic is open Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. until 5 p.m. and on Saturdays by appointment. That's Westrom Optometry. Thanks also to Story County Veterinary Clinic, where Dr. Kim Holding has been caring for all creatures, great and small, for over 30 years. Learn more at Story County Veterinary Clinic's Facebook page. All right, so Ed Fallon with you here. And, uh, you know, I don't, some people think I like to pick on the Democratic Party. I don't, but I feel, I, I feel we have to be honest about things, okay? Uh, all right, so I'm going to say that I think Joe Biden is the best climate president America has ever had. Unfortunately, it's a very low bar. And despite him being the best we've ever had, on balance, the record is not great. And, and here's some, um, okay, here's the good. The Inflation Reduction Act, the IRA, $370 billion for clean energy and what, a bunch of other climate efforts. But, big caveat, but, and I'm, I'm going to get back to that but. <laughs> okay, Biden also um brought the U.S. back into the Paris Climate Agreement. He got some applause for that. I will point out, too, that even while that's good, uh, 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 Cory Booker, when he was on the uh, campaign trail, the uh, senator from, uh, U.S. senator from New Jersey, when he was on the campaign trail, he pointed out that re-entering the climate, Paris Climate Agreement was, open quote, kindergarten. In other words, a very, very small first step. Uh, what else did Biden do that was good? Well, he canceled the, X, the Keystone XL pipeline. Good for him on that. But, uh, oh, on the bad side, on the other side of the ledger, um, you know, the, that, that Inflation Reduction Act, which, again, the $370 billion for climate stuff, also includes a big chunk of that climate money is corporate subsidies for these carbon dioxide pipelines, which arguably are going to make climate change worse. And there are some very strong expert opinions on that, and it's hard to argue otherwise, in my opinion. 
So yeah, it's a problem. You know, you get this bill that ostensibly does do some good things about climate change, and then you sneak stuff like that in there that make it worse. Okay, what else? Well, Biden, you know, Minnesota and a bunch of people concerned about Line 3 had wanted him to intervene in that controversial pipeline up there. Didn't do it. He, um, and I'm not that familiar with this, but I was reading about this just today, that he, uh, there was a, a federal screening tool that was meant to identify where disadvantaged communities were and how they'd been affected by various environmental hazards. Uh, race was left out of that screening tool. I, I need to learn more about that, but that's been identified as a concern that climate folks have about Biden's record. Okay, one of the most serious ones is he significantly boosted U.S. exports of natural gas. And uh, he also opened up 144,000 acres in the uh, Gulf of Mexico to new oil drilling leases. Some say he had no choice. Well, maybe, maybe not. But what he absolutely had a choice in was the Willow Project. Uh, the Willow Project was a real gut punch for a lot of people concerned about climate change. That's the um, oil and gas drilling project in Alaska. Uh, it's expected to release about 9.2 million metric tons of climate gases every year. That's huge. And of course, more recently, working with uh, Joe Manchin, cutting a deal with Joe Manchin, he um, basically signed off on the Mountain Valley Pipeline and left a whole bunch of folks in the Appalachian region, uh, uh, you know, hung them out to dry. Closer to home here in Iowa, he did not cancel the expansion of the Dakota Access Pipeline as he promised. I'm going to play you a couple clips from when he was here in Iowa, during, uh, during which time Bold Iowa was very aggressive about um, pushing him on where he stood on the Dakota Access Pipeline. I, by the way, you got a statement. All you guys in Iowa are pains in the neck. You know that? I know that. I want a personal <laughs> statement from you. I want you to sign it. Take my word, but I've never broken my word. That was in response to a question from me specifically about whether he would oppose the doubling of oil through the Dakota Access Pipeline. He said, I've always been against it. Uh, here he is again. You've been waiting. You? You, know, you know that guy? I do. Yes. Do you know the Dakota Access Pipeline? Yes. Do you know they're trying to double the flow of oil? I know. I opposed it to begin with. I know. I know. That's Kathy uh, questioning Joe Biden about the Dakota Access Pipeline. And he says... I've opposed it to begin with. Uh, you know, we were we were a little bit confused about that. <laughs> but uh, anyway, he said he was opposed to it. He was opposed to doubling it. He did not come out with any kind of statement or any effort to stop the, the uh, pipeline from being doubled. Here's one more clip. Uh, this is Kathy uh, confronting Joe Biden on his statement during his announcement tour that basically implying that we should be expanding all of our energy options. We are in a position to be able to, in fact, remain energy independent by moving to complete, total elimination of fossil fuels by the year 2050, starting now, ending all, no, no, let me, let me explain it, I, I'm starting with the fact that no more subsidies at all for any, any fossil fuel industry. Okay, so no more subsidies for fossil fuels. Well, that's, that's not happening. There are all kinds of fossil fuel subsidies continuing. So again, I, I'll say it again, you know, that President Biden may be the best we've ever had, but he's not, he's not meeting the challenge uh, that we are seeing this year more than ever before. I mean, the, the incredible heat waves across the globe, uh, the decline in viability of the coral reefs and other ocean environments in particular, uh, you know, it's just, um, he's not doing the job he said he would do. And there were very specific places in which he's gone back on his word. So, you know, and I heard him say that several times. Take my word as a Biden. I'm not even sure why you have to add as a Biden to take my word. But, um, you know, it's, um, it's not very good. I'm sorry. Every time I think, well, I wish Joe Biden was doing a better job. I remember that he was vice president under... Barack Obama. And Obama was, uh, was emphatic about uh, how important it was that he was going to address climate change. So, you know, I, was, uh, I came across a story in The Lever. And uh, it talks about this summer being the hottest ever recorded. 
talks about global fossil fuel consumption hitting an all-time high last year, probably going to get even worse this year, and how that's continuing to exacerbate the climate crisis. Uh, talking about uh, former President Obama, who spoke recently about the need for climate action and warned of the imperative to fight climate change. And in the, the article in the lever, and I'll read a quote, says, quote, Obama pretending they are powerless bystanders who played no part in creating the escalating crisis. He's referring to Obama as well as David Axelrod, his, uh, his White House chief of staff. So um, here's, um, here's Obama earlier this month talking with Hassan Minhaj uh, on Twitter. This is, uh, I'll play the entire clip because I think it's pretty instructive. Malia comes to me, she says, you know what, she's 24, all our friends, um, we, sometimes we talk about climate change and we just feel like there is no way we're going to be able to solve this. We're looking at the science. It feels as if we're on a trajectory that we're going to sail past this uh, two degrees centigrade right. benchmark where after that potentially things are getting cataclysmic. And so I'll be honest with you, Dad, a lot of my friends, they just feel as if, what's the point? Mm because the world's burning, and, and there's nothing I can do. And I, and I said to her, well, she asked me, what, what should I say to them? Right. And what I said to them is, what I said to her is, look, um, we may not be able to cap temperature rise to two degrees centigrade. But here's the thing, if we work really hard, we may be able to cap it at two and a half instead of three, mm -hmm. or three instead of three and a half. That extra centigrade, that might mean the difference between whether Bangladesh is underwater. Right. It might make the difference as to whether, um, you know, a hundred million people have to migrate, right, <laughs> or only a few. Right. In these incremental changes, matter. that matters. Yeah, I, I see. What it you're makes saying. a difference, sure. and and, and to it's be worth able, fighting for. And it's, it's worth fighting. And you for. can't descend into nihilism and not try to save those yes, 100, be, 200, 300 million people. It matters. That, that's a lot of I people. Agree with it. Yeah, that's a lot of people. <laughs> that's a lot of people. Okay, so you hear that? If, if you hear it out of context, you think, "Oh, here's a guy who really cares." You know, pe people who people who aren't of the belief that all Democrats are good <laughs> are crying foul about this. I mean. You know, when Obama and his team were, and I'll quote again from the lever, when they were, quote, in a position to limit future damage from climate change, they chose not to prioritize climate policy and instead expanded fossil fuel production, all while Obama and Democrats were, were rewarded with a gusher of campaign cash from the oil and gas industry. End of quote. You know, and so, you know, I think about it. People don't realize that. They think, well, you know, oil, big oil and big, uh, big gas companies, they want to contribute to Republicans. Well, no. Or Republicans and Joe Manchin. Well, it's, yeah, it's, it's certainly Republicans and Joe Manchin, but it was also Barack Obama and a bunch of other Democrats. So I found the story in Politico from 2012, and I'll read you the quote. Uh, during his time in the Senate and while running for president, Obama received a total of $77,051 from the oil giant BP. And he is the top recipient of BP PAC and individual money over the past 20 years, according to financial disclosure records. So, you know, it should be no surprise, again, that in 2018 in Texas, Obama boasted about the U.S. becoming the biggest oil exporting nation, saying, quote, that was me, people. You know, it's, it's not just Obama. It's also, again, his right-hand man, David Axelrod. Um, you know, and... And the lever calls out Obama and Axelrod's current rhetoric as, quote, designed to memory hole their culpability in the climate crisis as it now scorches the planet. Their sentimental interviews, documentaries, and tweets discussing the need for climate action, all without contrition for their past climate denial, may help launder their images, but the behavior stands in the way of a component necessary to help the United States meet it's climate commitments, and that is accountability. We need accountability. I mean, certainly that's been a, that's been a point of discussion at climate talks around the world, where the 
the nations that have done the most to cause climate change need to be accountable to those nations that are suffering the most from it and need to step forward with um, efforts to remediate the damage and to, and to, and to help, to help uh, prepare for the worsening impacts. Uh, you know, so, um, yeah, again, I'll read you one more Obama quote. I, you know, when Obama was elected, I had a lot of hope. I, I believed the hope and change thing. And unfortunately, it didn't happen. Honestly, we're seeing a little bit more hope and change under Biden than we did under Obama. But maybe it's because he received $1.1 million in campaign donations from the oil and gas industry during his 2012 re-election campaign. Maybe that had something. You think? You think $1.1 million from big fossil fuel helped influence his opinions, his actions, his decisions? I mean, here's, here's, here's Obama boasting. Uh, shortly after that, after his re-election. Under my administration, America is producing more oil today than at any time in the last eight years. We've quadrupled the number of operating rigs to a record high. We've added enough new oil and gas pipeline to encircle the earth and then some. As long as I'm president, we're going to keep on encouraging oil development and infrastructure, and we're going to do it in a way that protects the health and safety of the American people. We don't have to choose between one or the other. We can do both, end quote. And I'll tell you what, I, I don't know how you can read that, listen to that, hear that, and not be disgusted. That's what we get from the, that's what we, that's what we got from the president of Hope and Change, who promised us he'd do something about climate change, who promises his kid that we need to do more. We need to do more. I understand why you're upset, but we need to do more. Well, you needed to do more when you were president, and you didn't do it. Anyway, that's water over the dam. Now we continue to move forward. And uh, yeah, that's enough for this segment, folks. I'm going to take a short break. Uh, when we come back, Kathy Burns is going to join me. We're going to do our August Garden Q&A. Architecture by Synthesis provides planning, design, and design-build services for high-performance, low-maintenance, affordable homes and buildings. Owner Mark Clipsham asks that you use the most energy-efficient methods you can afford and the greenest, longest-lasting materials available. Examples of Mark's work can be found at architecturebysynthesis.com. That's architecturebysynthesis.com. At Westrom Optometry, Dr. Joel Westrom and his team provide a variety of services, including comprehensive eye exams, children's eye exams, and LASIK co-management. Whether strictly utilitarian or a fashion statement, your comfort and vision are Westrom's primary concern. Dr. Westrom and his staff will work closely with you to determine the best solution for your eyes, prescription, and lifestyle. Services are provided in English and Spanish, and the clinic is open Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. till 5 p.m. and on Saturdays by appointment. That's Westrom Optometry, located in Des Moines East Village. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Hey, thanks to our sponsors, including our anchor sponsor, Gateway Marketing Cafe, Central Iowa's premier good food store, bringing together the world's finest products with Iowa-grown foods and passionate, personalized service. If you're looking for quality foods with a community focus, check out Gateway Marketing Cafe. All right, Kathy Burns is with me here. Hey, Kathy, how are you? I'm good. I'm excited because I picked so many Amish paste today. Amish paste They're, tomatoes. They are beautiful. Yeah, that's we have uh, eleven plants, and they are just putting out. And it's a relief because last year was a very difficult year for tomatoes for us and and other a lot of other too, people yeah. and potatoes. So so this is very good. And there were a lot of questions uh, on some Facebook pages about uh, tomatoes. Yeah, I see one here. Uh, does anyone pick their tomatoes green and put them on a table instead of waiting for them to ripen on the vine? I have 250 plus of the most beautiful large green tomatoes, and I'm wondering if I can pick them now to help my plants not have so much weight on them. It's really good to alleviate that weight. You don't have to necessarily pick them all, but um, I, it depends how green they are. Yes, they will ripen. They may not be as succulent, as delicious, as wonderful as, as a vine ripened, but yeah, you'll, my, get, you'll my, get tomatoes. My, my opinion would be no. No? Just stake them up. You know, oh. add whatever support is needed to keep them from breaking, you know. 
Okay. Well, another thing is people might want to plan ahead for next year and get a better support system to start with. Yeah. Don't uh, use those silly, feeble, cone-shaped things from the stores. Get some cattle panel, loop it up, stake it down, and that is that is going to hold your tomatoes. I see somebody else was asking what to do about blossom and rot. Lots of lots As of always. blossom and rot questions. As always, yeah. and it's um, when you're when you're just now getting your tomatoes ripening. It can happen, and I, I even found one blossom and rot tomato today, and it was a little later in the season for us. But um, yeah, just make sure your watering is even. Give it some calcium. That could be crushed eggshell. That could be oyster shell. Or pour milk on the ground? No. <laughs> no, I don't think no. so. Okay. So yeah, um, yeah, we got questions about squash bugs. Uh, basically, the question, let's see, uh, what are these bugs all over my squash, zucchini, or pumpkin plants? They are squash bugs. <laughs> <laughs> and they are best controlled starting early as soon as your plants get nice big leaves looking at the bottoms of every leaf that you can and when you find those beautiful tiny pinpoint size copper colored eggs they get, they're in a beautiful geometric design cluster um, scrape them off and kill them. Decimate them. That's right. Yeah, It's easy to just does, scrape does them off work, with your Does it work just to like pinch them under the leaf? Does that kill them? That harms the leaf a little more. You can scrape them yeah. off. They're not on there too tight, yeah. and they'll come off pretty well. Another problem with, of course, the um, the squash, zucchini, etc., is the vine borers. And, yeah. And uh, diatomaceous earth, early and often applications of that around the, the base of the stem is the best way to keep them from having the problem. Yeah, you know, p- people will see I've got they've got a beautiful squash plant, and then the next day it's completely it's dead. Gone. And that's 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 a vine. You, when I uh, we we had that uh, we've had that happen twice this yes. year. Yes. And um, once actually I, I pulled up the uh, the plant and that tore you found open the, the stem grub. a little bit and there was the grub. Yep. Right yep. in there doing the damage. Got eat by got eaten by chickens. Now some people do <laughs> say that um, they have had luck. They 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 carefully split that that vine at the base vertically along the stem, and then find that grub, take it out, and yes, feed it to your chickens. And then they might throw some de diatomaceous earth over that, and then repile it with some soil. And they, they people are having right. luck regenerating. And then, but then you have vinyl. to you have to catch it before it. Yes. You, you know, that's the problem. Sometimes you really don't notice it happening until it's dead. So if you know. see that yellow, sawdusty-looking stuff and that base of that vine is, is looking cruddy. So somebody was asking about peach trees. Yeah. How uh, do you encourage better production on my peach tree? Well, this is fun. Um, we see peach trees around the neighborhood now with so many peaches that the branches are breaking. Yeah. And I had peaches like that when I lived in rural Jasper County here in Iowa. Um, and it's hard to it's hard to manage sometime with the time, but you've got to prune your peach tree correctly from the start. And peach trees are pruned differently than other trees. So. I see people with uh, using sticks and and various posts to mm-hmm. support the branches in in anticipation for yeah. heavy fruit crops. Well, be judicious too. If if there are so many peaches on that tree that it's going to break a branch. Take some peaches off when they're before they start to develop any size. More energy are going to go is going to go to those nice pe- peaches that remain. They're going to be big, juicy for you. You're just going to get a better crop. Uh, look up the proper way to prune peach trees, though, because it's very different from most trees. For instance, you do it in the spring. Not, sure, well, not February in, yeah. probably. Yeah. Well, no, after the after the oh, buds really? start after oh, really? the buds okay. turn pink. Interesting. Yeah, it's different. It's a different because they're cold hardy and a sure, damage to them is going to damage them a little more in the cold. Time for one more question. Do you snap off green <laughs> beans? Uh, would you just do you snap stem. off just the stems end of the green beans or both ends? That little curly tip. Yeah. That's just a mat. I mean, I think it's just a fun question. I snap <laughs> both ends because really? I don't like to eat that little curly pointy tip. When I get it in my mouth, I just don't like the feel of it, like it's got a tail or something. I like the tail. Okay. Right. <laughs> Kathy, thanks for joining us. Uh-huh. Hey, thanks to our guest today, uh, Iowa State Auditor Rob Sand and Joel Searby with the Forward Party. Thanks also to our production team of Sherry Herdina, Forrest Detterman, Kathy Burns, Charles Goldman, and myself, Ed Fallon. Thanks also to our local small business partners, Gateway Marketing Cafe, Architecture by Synthesis, Story County Veterinary Clinic, and Western Optometry. Thanks also to our nonprofit partners, Catholic Peace Ministry, 
Iowa Physicians for Social Responsibility, Bold Iowa, and Birds and Bees Urban Farm. And thanks to the Des Moines Irish Session for our bumper music. We'll be back next week with another hour of Cutting Edge Talk Radio.